Well, what a great and magnificent day together. I'm so glad you're here. We're so privileged to study the Word of God. I'm always surprised, even on a day like this, which for Hawaii, this is 12 inches of snow and ice, that people actually still come out and study the Word of God. Take your Bibles with me and open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Again, we're on this thematic study of NBC identity, so really looking at a number of different passages, but this sort of sets the stage as to the purpose, and I would say distinctives even, of our church body. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world taken up in glory. This is the Word of God. If you are new with us, and it seems like every week we have folks who are visiting for the first time, since the beginning of the year we have been doing this study on the identity of Makakilo Bible Church, who we are as a church, what are we all about. And we have answered the question so far by saying two things. Number one, we are Christian, and second, we are Protestant. And essentially what I've done at the beginning of the year is preach two really long sermons broken up in several parts. We looked at the idea of being Christian. What does the Bible say about true believers, about true Christianity? And that is indeed uh, core to who we are as a church. And then also what it means to be Protestant. Though we don't use that term a lot, it, it does mean something for us, and it does mean something as a church. And there we studied uh, for several weeks the five soli, the five weeks, the five soli of the Reformation to describe who we are as a Protestant church. This week I want to introduce the third description of who we are, and it's just going to be this week, and then the fourth description will be next week. Not two elongated sermons, but two sermons on two different Sundays. And really, these are the distinctives. Those, those other issues, we are Christian, we are Protestant, are really the most important things. These are the things that are the, the core, the, the highest level of theology and doctrine of who we are. These things, this Sunday and next Sunday, are really about our distinctives. What differ us from perhaps other Protestant Christian churches on this island or in America? What are the things that are true about us that are a little bit different? What are the things that what are ways we can describe ourselves as at NBC that may be a little bit different than perhaps most other Protestant Christian churches? So this week, I want to introduce this third description of who we are. What is it? Who we are? Part three, we are reformed. Now, don't get all bent out of shape just yet. We are reformed. What in the world does that mean? I, I, I know that as soon as you introduce more specific descriptions... People's imagination drift away. 
They sort of start to wonder what that really uh, means. And you guys know me, as those of you who've been here for a while, you know me. It's, I've been here for almost a decade, and I'm not really big on titles, calling myself an ist or an ism, and, 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 and sort of trying to always define what that means. And, and really, that's, that's why, because I'd prefer to just preach the Bible, just come up week after week and just explain the next passage, wherever we are in the Bible, than try to defend some sort of ism or ist. And that's really what happens when you describe yourself, maybe it's even the word Baptist, you have to sort of make sure that person understand what you mean by Baptist, what you mean by an ist or an ism, and how you define that. And it's not this, but it's this. It's not this, but it's this. And, and really, typically, I hesitate to do that because I don't want to take the time up here that I could be used, uh, they could be used spending, talking about the Bible, dis- discussing the passages of Scripture. But we do have this Uh, freedom here to do this. I've taken the freedom to do this today and next week just to describe a little bit better who we are. I'm a little worried, a little hesitant about this series and giving these titles, these names, because I didn't want to think that maybe I'd gone off the deep end or I was changing who we are, not at all. But I do think it helps us understand. Well, what do I mean when we say we are Reformed? The, The basic definition of a Reformed church is the kind of church or kind of Christian that sees great value in two basic doctrines, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. A Reformed church is a church that cherishes the sovereignty of God and the authority of the Bible. And you'll see that my outline even today roughly follows this basic idea. Just to give you a little bit of understanding, a little historic context here, how things came to be. About 100 years after the Reformation revival swept across Europe, and beyond, there was a group of people inside the, the Protestant church, the Protestant Reformed church in the Netherlands, and they, they began to grow. They began to get a little more and more popular. They had a very well-spoken, charismatic leader by the name of Jacob Arminius, and he, he wanted, he, he looked at the Reformed doctrine, he looked at Protestant doctrine, and he said, can we walk back some of this doctrine a little bit? Can we be a little more friendly to the doctrine of the Catholic church? Can we walk some of these things back? He focused attention really on those two ideas, the, the idea of God's sovereignty and the idea of the authority of Scripture. He said, surely salvation somehow is tied to man's free will. Surely God sort of looks at man first and makes his decision based not on his sovereignty but on man. And do we have to have the Bible in such a prominent place in terms of restricting our worship and the way we do things in church? Do we have to have it at such a a concrete stricture? Can't we be a little more free in the way in which we do church? Well, the the Dutch church there in the Netherlands had a a big meeting because this was becoming a bigger and bigger movement. They had a big meeting. That meeting was called a, a synod, and they had it in a town called Dordrecht. This is what is called the Synod of Dort. And there they repudiated the teachings of Arminius. They expelled him from the church and they established their commitment to the doctrine of the Reformers, especially as they pertain to God's sovereignty and the Scriptures. Well, the rest, you could say, is history. Arminius went on to pastor that church, and he went one way with some people, and the church and the rest of Protestant Christianity stuck with uh, the original Reformed group, and Protestant Christianity has been divided on these terms ever since. On the one hand, you have the Reformed groups, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, Anglicans, later on, Congregationalists, 
Many other Reformed groups. On the other hand, you have the Arminian side of Protestant Christianity, the Methodists, the Wesleyans, charismatic denominations such as Assembly of God or Calvary Chapel. And it's not that either side completely disagrees with one another, defies one another's theology, but there are things that are emphasized differently in each side of the debate. Now, let me hasten to add, though there is this divide, it is a collegial divide, right? It is a friendly debate. There are God-fearing, Bible-loving, true Christians, plenty of them, on both sides of the argument. Unless you find someone who's sort of immature or new to the idea, there, there shouldn't be any kind of animosity or frustration or anger. You're always going to find some immature people who are, who are just sort of angry at some other side. But as you mature, you'll find older, more mature people, a little more calm, a little less agitated about the other side of the debate. Over time, it's, it's gotten a little messier than just dividing it up by denomination. First of all, you have a lot of, especially nowadays, you have a lot of churches that are not denominational, they're non-denom churches, non-denominational, and, and they want to be that way because they want to avoid debates just like this. Other churches, even entire denominations, have, have actually moved away from perhaps what their founders taught and thought, and I can think of several denominations, not the least of which is our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, that has moved a little further away from what uh, the sort of Calvinistic Reformed founders uh, began the denomination. Uh, the idea is there. They've moved sort of away from that, especially in the last uh, 50 or 100 years. Again, you're going to find people who are antagonistic about this divide in both camps. Again, this just shows a level of immaturity or perhaps a level of a lack of knowledge. And these are the kind of people that probably, you know, go home and kick their dogs and yell at their wife and root for the New England Patriots and all that stuff. You'll find immature people who make an issue about this. And, and I would just say this, but just by way of application, don't be a jerk about this stuff. Always be friendly and warm. There are good godly. In fact, there's no side of the debate. Sometimes there are stereotypes that are, that are propagated that, that one side it lacks knowledge or lacks doctrine or lacks theology. The other side is very evangelistic. Don't fall into those stereotypes. Don't buy into those things. That just ruins the debate. Just be kind and friendly and warm and understand that this is sort of how the way the church has fallen. It's just history. And there are good, godly, pious, knowledgeable, loving, very evangelistic people on both sides of the debate. Well, Makakilo Bible Church, used to be Makakilo Baptist Church, began as a Southern Baptist mission in the 1960s. And then in 1971, we incorporated as a Southern Baptist church, a part of the Hawaii Baptist Convention, what is called the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention today. In fact, we're going to have a big celebration, if they let us, uh, late in May. That will be our 50th anniversary this very year. It's our 50th anniversary, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, celebrate to, at least, to some extent at least. And so our distant roots, looking all the way back to, you know, through Southern Baptist history, our distant roots are, are more on the Reformed side of the debate. But not just from a historical standpoint, the Reformed teachings from long ago, even today we have moved more into that idea of being a Reformed church. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? As we take that original thought of a Reformed church, what does that mean for MBC? Number one, maybe you want to write this down, number one, it means that we proclaim God's glory and sovereignty. We proclaim God's glory and sovereignty. 
Now, I put glory here first because that's the objective. That's the purpose. We're not fatalists. We're not determinists that God is this cold, calculated machine that's just working, churning through history, and we're just listless cogs doing nothing. No, we find our joy, our experience of His love in celebrating His sovereignty. It's all about His glory. We, we find the presence of His Spirit, the, the happiness is direct, directly related to God's glory, which is related to His sovereignty. Emphasizing His sovereignty, our objective is to glorify God, to give Him all the glory, to cherish that glory, to revel in that glory, to believe in that sovereignty insofar as it gives Him glory. Now, here's the deal. I believe all true Christians, no matter what side of the debate, all true Christians, I believe, really want to give God glory. Again, we don't have the edge on giving God glory or worshiping God. I think all Christians really strive and really want to give God glory. In fact, I would say most Christians really love the idea of God's sovereignty, His strength, His power, His ordination of all things. In fact, even when you talk to somebody maybe on the other side of the debate, more in the Arminian camp, if you start to press them about salvation, very rarely will you find someone say something like, well, I just thank myself for choosing God. Usually what they'll say is, I give all the glory to God. People Christians love to give glory to God. However, there's a couple aspects about God's sovereignty that are surprising and may be avoided by a lot of people. One, of course, we've talked about is God's sovereignty in salvation. It's just hard for us to accept and understand that as humans, we are responsible to repent and have faith and follow Christ, but at the same time, God is completely sovereign in every individual person's salvation. I struggled with it. I even grew up, and my dad preached the sovereignty of God, talked about the sovereignty of God all the time, but I struggled to accept it, especially when it came to my own salvation. Now, I've already discussed this at length. You can go back to the sermon on sola gratia or even go back several months. We paused our study in Matthew and talked about Romans chapter 9 or perhaps even go back many years when I did preach through Romans 9 and study that, and we've done that already. I think that horse is dead. I've beaten it enough. We can move on. But that is an area that you'll hear from time to time in a Reformed church that may be sort of surprising, that may be something that you don't hear out of a lot of churches, the sovereignty of God in salvation. The other thing that people struggle, in respect, struggle with in respect to God's sovereignty is God's sovereignty in suffering, God's sovereignty over even evil and hardship, sickness, natural disaster, and even death. If you grew up in a Christian home, what's the first Christian song you learned? Jesus loves me, right? This I know. You were told about God's love. You are told about God's kindness, told about God's mercy, His care, His compassion, which are all true, and these are things that actually drive us to repentance. The, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. And hearing these things as children, it draws us to a loving, beautiful, wonderful God. But oftentimes, especially to children, these things are taught to the exclusion of God's sovereignty, even in hardship, to the exclusion of God's wrath, to the exclusion of God's power and strength and God's use of evil 
in this world. It's hard for us to imagine that God would have anything but a, a bed of roses to, to, to sleep in the rest of our lives and to, to, to walk through this beautiful time, always being healed, always being uh, 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 brought out of poverty and hardship, and God always has that miracle. It's hard for us to accept the fact that sometimes God has mapped hardship and poverty, perhaps even death, on our lives. And so we have an impulse sometimes when it comes to the hard, uh, hardship or evil in this world. We have the impulse to sort of rescue God from His sovereignty over these things. To sort of say, well, God didn't really want that. He allowed it perhaps, but He didn't really want that. And He wants you out of that hardship as, as quickly as possible. But the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, even all the way through death. In fact, read jo Job chapter 1. God not only is sovereign over it, he, he ordains evil for His purpose. He aims, you could say, he aims Satan's evil to accomplish his purpose. Now, this is just for an era. This is this era until Christ returns, but God uses evil for his greater purposes. He uses a violation of his moral laws in order to accomplish his sovereign will. Think about the greatest act of evil ever to be perpetrated on the face of the planet. No, it wasn't some natural disaster. It was not some war. It was not some serial killer or some kind of horrible thing that happened. The most evil thing that happened in human history was the unjust trial and crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet that, the, the greatest evil of all, was rendered to our greatest good and God's greatest glory. And that is a template for all evil that happens. It's hard to see. Maybe we don't know the whole picture. Maybe we can't understand. Maybe especially in the middle of hardship and, and difficulty, it's hard for us to really believe this. But that's where faith comes in. We trust you, God, that you are sovereign even over evil. That verse, Romans 8, 28, you know the passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That doesn't mean no sickness, no death, no poverty, no hardship. What that means is we back away as Christians and see a bigger picture. God is after something bigger than just my comfort, than just my healing, than just me being wealthy or having an easy time in life. And in the end, we submit to His will. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Even in persecution, even in sickness, even in death, we are more than conquerors. Yeah, we don't conquer death. We don't conquer physical illness. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because of Him who loved us. We have a relationship with Christ. We see the bigger picture. We see hardship as, again, something that God is not surprised by, something that God is sovereign over. We see all of it as God's way of glorifying Himself in us, and for that we rejoice, even if we die. My father's favorite hymn is the hymn, Like a River Glorious. Some of you know that hymn? That third verse starts out, Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. And so here at NBC, as a Reformed church, we pray for healing. We pray that circumstances will change. We pray for children to come home, for marriages to be healed. But in the end, we pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. 
We don't think that we can sort of claim our way out of hardship. We don't think that God owes us a better life or our best life. Yes, we ask for these things. We humbly request that that God would work on our behalf and and change our circumstances and make things better for us or easier for us. But in the end, we say, Lord, we submit to whatever you have mapped upon our dial. We trust you. We believe you. I lay down my life as a living sacrifice. I am yours and yours alone. So if you're new with us or if you're wondering what this means, a Reformed church, I don't think we have to dig in and make it super, super specific, but there are these two ideas that, one, we emphasize the sovereignty of God, and then we emphasize the authority of Scripture. God is not a cold-hearted God. We trust in His sovereignty over all and from time to time, if you come to Reformed Church, you'll hear, him, hear the preacher talk about God's sovereignty, even in a couple areas that maybe we're not accustomed to hearing, maybe that we're not really, uh, maybe we didn't grow up hearing, but the sovereignty of God in terms of salvation, in terms of suffering. So that's the first thing. We proclaim God's glory and His sovereignty. What else does it mean that we're Reformed? Number two, it means that we strive for a biblical ministry philosophy. It's kind of a mouthful, but I think we need all of those words, a biblical ministry philosophy. This is all based on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, as we studied some weeks ago in Sola Scriptura. Now, let me just say something. I've repeated this several times through the years. The basic idea of a philosophy is that it seeks to answer the questions why and how. So when we apply this to a church, for instance, why is there preaching? Why does God put preaching in a church? Why is there this moment of preaching? Well, the way you answer that question, why is there preaching, will tell you how to preach. Why do we gather on the Lord's Day and, and sing songs together as a church? Well, the, the way you answer that question, why do we gather and sing, will determine how you gather and sing. Why children's ministry? Why women's ministry? Why men's ministry? Why work days? Why family groups? Why youth groups and mission trips? All of those are the ministries of the church, and the way you answer that question, why, to those will determine how you actually do those things. This is called ministry philosophy. Ministry philosophy. Well, when it comes to popular ministry philosophies, and we worked, this in the, worked through this in Men of the Word a few weeks ago, when it comes to ministry philosophies, there are three very popular ministry philosophies, or actually two really popular, and then the one that we sort of stick to. Among Christian Protestant churches today, there's three basic philosophies that drive, really answer that question, why, about everything they do. If you survey churches, if you ask pastors, if you start to dig, a lot of times you won't see this on their website or on their statement of faith, but as you dig, as you get involved, what you will find is that every church, even if it's a blending of these different philosophies, every church in the end will have one philosophy that sort of drives everything. What are these three philosophies? The first is what you might call the church growth philosophy. You could call this pragmatism. And there are wonderful Bible-believing churches and pastors. We can fellowship with them. We can work with churches 
There are many of us here who have been affected, impacted by churches that hold to this particular philosophy. Again, you'll hear me say this more than once. Maybe that's not, uh, it's not stated as such on their website. We believe in the church growth philosophy, or we are pragmatic here. You won't see that on their website. You won't see this announced on a Sunday morning. But as you dig, what you find is their biggest desire is that they grow numerically. They seek to be attractive. They seek to be inviting to outsiders, the lost. Overall, this is a desire to be evangelistic, which is indeed a, a great impulse. It's a desire to, to draw people in, to, to see people saved, to grow the kingdom. Their thought is, and I believe probably what I would say their error is, that they think that they grow God's kingdom by growing their individual church. And so, I think maybe with good motives, there is a desire to grow, to grow, to grow, to constantly grow, to, in fact, adopt all kinds of business marketing and business principles to cause the church body to grow bigger and bigger numerically and financially speaking. This is the church growth philosophy or pragmatism. The second very popular ministry philosophy is what you might call the spiritual experience philosophy or perhaps revivalism. Again, there are plenty of wonderful, God-fearing, Bible-believing churches, pastors full of wonderful Christians who hold to this philosophy, and we don't want to be, again, one of those people who are angry at anybody who doesn't believe exactly like us. We can affirm them and be happy about their existence. But the objective in a church that holds to revivalism is that in everything to provide some sort of spiritual experience. Of course, that experience begins with salvation, but it's also realized in, in other ways, personal revival, a deeper life, a second blessing, a new Pentecost. Again, they may not have a statement of faith that states it as such, we are revivalists here, but as you dig and as you ask questions and as you listen to sermons, what you realize over time is that what they're after is that everyone have some sort of amazing, perhaps even mystical experience with God. Whether it's on Sunday morning or in a small group or home alone in your own devotions, that, that really is the desire of the leadership of the church that we would have some sort of amazing experience experience. So that's the second major philosophy. Now, we hold to a Reformed ministry philosophy, and what this means, maybe you want to call it biblicism, and that doesn't mean the others don't care about the Bible. What it means is we want our, our sole goal, our highest goal, our objective above everything else is to do everything as the Bible has told us to do. My experience is that most churches don't fall into this category. They fall into one or two of those, both of those other categories I mentioned. So I think this is really does make our church a little bit distinct here at NBC. We hold to this Reformed ministry philosophy. Like I said, we call this biblicism, again, not implying that the other ministry philosophies don't care about the Bible, that the whole objective is to, to do exactly as it is stated to us in Scripture, to put a lot of attention, a lot of focus, to, to define our church by what is stated in Scripture. 
Our objective is not numbers. It's not numeric growth. Though we would love to see more people come. We would love to see people saved and more baptisms. Many new folks in the church, we love when new people come. We have a surge that's been happening really since last year of new folks, and we, we love that. But in the end, we leave numbers to God and God alone. A good passage is looking back at Matthew 16 that we studied some months ago where Jesus says, I will build my church. Our job is not to fret or organize or calculate or emphasize or even try to make God's kingdom bigger. That's not our job. That's His job. And Jesus told a parable in Mark 4. I preached on this a couple of times. Mark 4, 26, a sower who goes out to sow seed. And what does he do? He sows seed and he sleeps. He doesn't know how that seed germinates and grows and matures and bears fruit. He doesn't know how that happens. That's a miracle that's not his responsibility. His job is simply to sow the seed. And so we focus our attention not on getting bigger, not on growing numerically. Our attention is focused on being and doing exactly what God has told us to be and do in Scripture. Yes, we want to be kind and warm and we welcome visitors and we're happy when folks come, but our focus is not on numbers. numbers. Ten years ago, I had the church actually stop counting. We put that burgundy notebook away. We just stopped counting. And we kind of keep a general idea of how many come because we have to be worried about parking and seats and that overflow and that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, we don't care. And that's not a, a metric for us to how good we're doing, especially in a place like here where we have a lot of people transitioning through, right? We've got people coming and going all the time. There, there are times that there are few people. There are times there are many people. Plus, you look at the Bible, sometimes there's not just holy additions to the church. Sometimes there's holy subtractions, Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes God, in order to make a church what He wants it to make, it has to take folks out of the church. So we don't use numbers as a metric for our health. We don't look to that. Though we would love more people to be saved, though we would love, we love when new people come to us, it's not something that we gear and orchestrate and organize our whole ministry around in terms of gaining numbers. We reject that particular philosophy. Our objective is also not spiritual experiences. Do we want people to have an experience with God? Of course we do. We want people to come to faith and repent? You bet. I preach about it all the time. Do we want people to, to go to the next level, so to speak, of their spiritual walk, to, to grow, to mature, to have a deeper life, to, to, to read their Bible more, to be obedient more? Of course we do. But again, we believe that is something only God can do in a person's heart. We cannot make that happen. Moreover, we don't see this as something we're commanded to, commanded to focus on as a church, some sort of uh, revival movement. Yes, we would love for people to be moved and changed, but our objective is not to get people to have spiritual experience, to manipulate and motivate and organize and do our worship services, to, 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 to promote some kind of epiphany or moment in a person's life. Yes, we would want people to experience God in a new way, but that is something between them and God. Our job, again, is to be and to do exactly what Scripture wants us. Well, let me make, give you some examples of this just to make this a little bit clearer. Again, I think this is really is this week and next week are really about the distinctives of our church, and so this would be maybe what's a little bit different, and we don't judge other churches, but this is what, what is different from NBC than with other churches a couple of examples. One example would, of course, be the preaching. Again, if you're new with us, you may not know this, but I preach 
not only Lectio Continua, which means through books, book by book, verse by verse, but I preach expositionally. What I do, the meaning and the message of the text is replicated in the way in which I preach. I don't just take a verse and use it as sort of a springboard to talk about whatever I want to talk about. We try to get into the meaning and the message of that text and apply it to our hearts. Let me draw this from 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, several other passages with an example of Jesus, the example of the apostles, even going to the Old Testament, this idea of, of preaching the meaning and message of the text. But if the philosophy of the church is growth, is pragmatism, the objective of preaching is, sure, sure you want to be faithful to the Bible, but the idea is to be preaching, to be delivering something that is attractive, that draws people in and causes numeric growth. The question moves from being, what has the Bible said about preaching, to what do people like? What will more people come for? You see how ministry philosophy drives how a pastor preaches? If the philosophy is revivalism, the question becomes, how can I get people to be moved? How can I motivate them? How can I make them feel something and experience something? How can I do that? Rather than simply, again, the question of what is preaching described as in the Bible? If the philosophy of preaching is reformed, if it is biblicism, it asks that simple question, what does God say? What does the Bible say what preaching is? One of the things that drove me to uh, Reformed ministry philosophy away from other philosophies, even though I think when I was doing this, I was sort of more squarely maybe in the church growth philosophy at that point. One of the things that drove me away and in my studies, I had to read or skim about a hundred books on preaching. And what was something that came as some, somewhat of a surprise to me is that so few of them ask that simple question, what does the Bible say about preaching? Most of them focused on getting people's attention, on getting them to, to come back for more the next week, giving good illustrations. I remember I, I read at the time there was a pastor who, whose church in the, it was outside of Atlanta had exploded. He was one of the most popular preachers, I think probably even still today, very popular preacher. And I I read his book on preaching, and basically his book talks about preaching based upon his interview with a truck driver who had been coming to his church, and then some interviews with other people, and from those interviews, he asked them, you know, what should preaching be like? And he derived his philosophy of preaching based upon what they said. Again, all, all what they said, most of them either, either knew or non-Christians even, what they wanted, what they wanted to hear, what they liked. And I was so disappointed. Not once did he ask, what does God want? What is God like in preaching? So a Reformed church will ask that question first and foremost. What, not what, is, what draws people in, not what gets people to be moved, what, not what manipulates their emotions, but what does the Bible say about preaching? We're going to do that, and we're going to stick with that. Uh, let me give you another example. Worship right? The singing, we'll use that to talk about the singing. Again, people with very good intentions derive their whole program of church music, their whole Sunday morning is, is based on drawing people in, 
or perhaps creating an experience that will draw people in, using music to sort of push this encounter or to draw people back again and again? Why do you think most of what we see in most popular churches is basically a concert? Oh, because people like to go to concerts. They like to see great performances. Lights out, amazing concert. It's what people want. It's what people are moved by. Every once in a while, someone comes to me and uh, visits our church and sort of tells me why they think that we don't turn the lights out and have the colored lights and a jamming band up here who's rocking it up here every Sunday. And usually they think it has to do with either or both a lack of talent or an antiquated uh, taste in music. They think that's why we worship the way in which we worship. Well, you may be surprised to know, first of all, we have a number of amazing musicians. A number of people in our church actually make their living with music, and they're very good. We could probably pull off something just as amazing as some of these very, very fancy churches. Also, if you talk to Steve and myself and many others, you'll, you'll find out we have a very broad appreciation of music. We're not just, you know, listening to the worship songs of the 90s. Listen to all kinds of stuff. We appreciate all kinds of stuff. So why do we worship? Why do we do music the way we do? Well, first of all, it has to do with worshiping Him in spirit. If you study that text out of John 4, what you find worshiping in spirit is all relative to this lady coming to the Savior, coming to Christ. This is not a gathering of lost people. We include lost people. We welcome lost. If you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. But this is the church, and we have come to worship our God. We're not doing this for the world to make them say, oh, it's really cool. We're doing this to honor God in our spirits, to worship God, since the Spirit has changed us, to reflect that glory back to Him. We're not doing this to draw people in. We're not doing this to get them to have an experience. We're doing this to bring glory. As the church, the called out ones, we're doing this to worship and honor our God. And we do it in spirit and in what? Truth. And so we flood our songs, not with empty lyrics and catchy little ditties. We flood our songs with biblical truth so that as you sing... As it says in Colossians and Ephesians, as you sing, you're not just singing glory to God, but you're also teaching and admonishing one another. We're thinking about these truths. We're, we're digging deep even in our minds as we sing. It's not a mindless thing. It's not just this emotional thing. It is, a, it is a time where we come and we engage our minds and think through the words and worship our God in spirit and in truth. Totally different focus than many churches. Well, you can think of other examples. I wrote down several of them. One of them, I'll just point one more out. One of them would be evangelism. If your philosophy is numbers, if your philosophy is growth, if your philosophy is to get more people as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible, you're going to create a gospel. You're going to create events and programs that will do just that, will, that will just draw people in. And, and the objective oftentimes in these contexts is, is not making of disciples. It is getting a convert, getting someone to, to that point where they'll pray a prayer or at least attend church. 
seems to be sort of the end game. But if you read Jesus' great commission, what did he tell the disciples? He said, I want you to make disciples. He'd just been three years teaching them. He says, teach them all things I've commanded. He didn't divide up discipleship over here. You have your discipleship program, but what's more important is evangelism program. No, it's all one thing, the making of disciples. And we don't put the impetus, the responsibility on the church pastors to come up with events and programs that will just get a lot of people to check that box, I got saved. No, we, what we do is we encourage everyone in the church, every individual, every person who joins, new members know this, you're responsible for taking the gospel to your world. You're responsible. It's not the pastor's responsibility. It's not some sort of idea or some sort of great plan that happens up here. You're responsible for taking this truth to the world. So Reformed ministry philosophy applies preaching to worship to evangelism, and you can just go down the list. You can talk about children's ministry or men's ministry, even work days. What drives us ultimately is that there be a one-to-one relationship with what we see them doing in the Bible and what we're doing as a church, what God commands in Scripture of a church and what we do. In all of these things, we seek to do exactly what the Bible says. And I really do believe that in all Christians' hearts, that's, that's really their, their greatest desire, to please God, to obey Him, to do what He says. And I think that it just... The, the, the fact that so many people come in year after year to this church, I, I believe it tells me that there's that many people. We, we don't do things flashy here. We're not uh, fancy. But yet, people come again and again, and usually they tell me something like this. It's because this is just stripped-down biblical church. We just want to do what the Bible says, whether it's preaching or worship or whatever. Year after year, God brings people, God brings you to this place because... We desire to honor Him by simply doing what He says in Scripture. Well, it is our prayer that we will be faithful to the Lord in this way, that our church, that we as a church not just believe intellectually or on paper sola scriptura, our statements of faith, that we actually live soli deo gloria, to God's glory. In our effort to do so, we seek to follow His Word as closely as possible and trust Him for the results in terms of numbers or spiritual moving. My prayer is that we don't just do this as a church, as an organization, but that you would do it as an individual. You would seek to follow the Lord in all things. You would have a Reformed biblical ministry in your life. You would have a philosophy that drives you to the Word of God. Well, let's pray for that even now. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for what you've given us. We pray, Lord, that we would be people above all else that seek to please you by doing what your Scripture says. Our our first question is, what do the Scriptures say? No matter what ministry, no matter what plan we have, our first question is always, what do the Scriptures say? Lord, help us to live this out. Help us to live it out not just in our church, in the organization of our church, but in our lives. Lord, that begins particularly for those who don't know you, that begins by having faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible even says that the gospel is a command to have faith and repent. And so, Lord, I pray that you would inspire them, give them the desire to have faith and repent, call them to salvation. Lord, I pray that they would see that as what your Scripture calls them to do, and I pray that they would do that even now. And all of us, Lord, we all need to trust you and believe in you and live this out. Help us to be a people of the book, not just 
by our words and our songs, but people of the book in the way in which we lead our lives. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.